Good morning, friends, and Merry Christmas. I'm going to leave this up here. My voice seems like it wants to fight me a little bit. Um, If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there uh, to Luke chapter 2. If you don't, I believe it's in your bulletin as well, the passage for this morning. Um, I saw... We, uh, several weeks ago, I guess, I think Oscar was originally slated to preach today, and um, I was thinking, you know, Oscar's got a little one, and David's got three little ones, and the day before today was Christmas Day, I've preached on Luke 2 before, I thought, I'm just going to, I'm just going to reach out and see if Oscar would, would want a breather and not have to be preparing a sermon on Christmas Day when You'd otherwise, you know, be enjoying that time with his kids. And so um, seemed like that was useful. So I'm glad to be here with you guys again. I do enjoy visiting with you all. There is, um, I feel like there's a real distinct warmth here and, and pastoral care. So I appreciate <clears throat> your church and, and, and what you guys are doing. I know you've gone through a long process uh, with this pastoral search and certainly continuing to uplift you guys in prayer as that um, continues to progress. But uh, in any case, um, we're going to be in Luke 2 this morning, a very familiar passage, uh, one that you've probably read uh, here, here in the last few days, even maybe you, we read it with our family yesterday after uh, uh, Christmas dinner and, 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 and then sang a little bit. And it's just a, it's, it's a wonderfully familiar passage, but, but sometimes the risk with passages that have become so familiar to us is that is that our hearts can sort of just skirt right by them because we've known them forever and we can miss the majesty of what's actually what's actually going on here. So um, there in, in the part that we're going to look at, there are three major movements. I know it's very familiar to you, but but I hope that that I'll be able to preach and you guys will be able to listen with fresh ears and uh, you know maybe think of this as a belated Christmas gift. So we'll we'll open together, right, the the passage of Luke chapter two and and maybe hopefully see with fresh eyes and fresh gratitude uh, the wonder of what was taking place there in Bethlehem. Uh, there's basically three major movements to to the the passage in Luke two that we're going to look at today. Uh, the birth of Jesus, right? That's 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 foremost and most obvious. Uh, following the the introduction of Jesus' birth, we get a description of heaven's response with the angels <clears throat> singing and announcing and heralding uh, the glory of this, this baby born to save. And then following that, so, so the birth of Jesus, the response of heaven, and then following that is, is the human response, which kind of unpacks in three waves. First, you see, we'll see the, how the shepherds respond, and then we will see how Mary responds and then I think the way that Luke is writing his gospel, he's also inviting his hearers to respond. So we're part of the human audience responding to Jesus. And there are things that are role modeled for us by the shepherds and by Mary that <clears throat> Luke wants us to take, to take with us. So the first um, chunk, verses 1 through 7, I'm actually going to just break it up even into smaller segments and read and make a couple of comments because the first few verses of Luke chapter 2 set the historical context, the historical frame of reference for what's going on here. So let's, let's start uh, by looking at verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Again, very familiar words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Just very quickly here on those first couple of uh, verses, Luke reminds us by giving us historical markers and historical indicators that, that while he's about to tell us about the most miraculous birth that has ever taken place, right, the supernatural of supernatural miracles, he's reminding us that this miraculous birth takes place in real history. Right? It's, 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 this isn't, uh, you know, once upon a time kind of language. This is real uh, human history. And the point behind that is that if God the Son does not actually enter the, the human race in real history, then there is no salvation for fallen humans. Right? If he doesn't enter real history <clears throat> and really enter the human race to rescue us from the dilemma of sin, then humans have no answer to the dilemma of sin. If it's, if it's, if it's a neat little uh, fictitious mythological tale, it, it, it might be interesting, but it does not save, Right? So, so, so Luke is indicating by these historical markers, this, this really happened. So one of the reasons, by the way, uh, we're not, we're not going to turn there, but Hebrews 2.16 tells us that Jesus didn't help fallen angels, only fallen humans. You, angels fell, there, 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 there's, a, there, uh, there, there's a fall among the race of angels as well as among the race of humans. But there is no plan of salvation for fallen angels. And one of the reasons for that, according to Hebrews 2, is that Jesus entered the human line and not their line. By, by means of this miraculous birth and incarnation, he joins humans to rescue them from their sin. In other words, in order to save, he has to become like those whom he saves, to represent them with righteousness. He did that for humans. He did not do that <clears throat> for angels. Uh, verses 4 and 5, very quickly, again, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So again, just right, there's a census that, that we're being told about here. It's a real historical census. Here's what's important, I think, with this, uh, with this fact. On the face of it, to the people at that time, right, in that place, it looked like just a census. It's all, that's all it appeared to be from, from all uh, apparent um, evidence on the face of it. But in verses 4 and 5, which we just read, Luke is telling us there is more to the story. There is a census, but the census is God's means of moving this humble, otherwise insignificant couple to Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. And that's an important reminder to us, isn't it, that at any given time, including the present time, there are always in the economy of God a million more things going on than you and I can presently see, right? To, uh, to, to Joseph in the Old Testament, it just looked like he was being betrayed by his brothers. There was a whole lot more happening. To us, it may just look like COVID and a loss of income. <clears throat> to you, it may just look like the rejection of a friend or a teacher or a coach. To Joseph's and Mary's contemporaries, it only looked like a census. But earth-shattering events 
history-shaking events were underway. And that's so important to be reminded of when we cannot see all that the Lord sees and is up to, right? We, 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 can't, we can't map all the details of his plan, but we can trust his character, and we can chiefly trust his character because of what he's doing in this story, right? Verses 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So, so in the inn, sorry. So eventually, after what had seemed <clears throat> an interminably long wait, remember, they've, they've gone 400-ish years without having heard a word from the Lord, the people of Israel have. After an interminably long wait, Galatians 4.4 puts it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So this is, I mean, not just, not just reaching back to the, to the minor prophets, but reaching back all the way to God's promise to, uh, <clears throat> to Eve, or actually it's his, his judgment on the snake in Genesis chapter 3, that one day the seed of the woman will rise up and crush the head of the seed of the serpent, even as the serpent strikes at his heel. Luke is telling us that that long-awaited moment is here. The one who has come to crush snakes has arrived. But given all the expectations of what snake crushing might look like, this seems a fairly unspectacular debut. A baby born to an insignificant family, laid to rest in an animal's food trough. But friends, this is the pattern of how Jesus is going to do what he came to do. He is, at this point, right, born and, and laid in a manger. He's gone very low, hasn't he? Very humble. And he's not yet gone as low as he is going to go. He is laying a pattern here. The one by whom all things were created and through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created is laid in a feed trough. And he's on his way to going lower still. As uh, Isaiah 53 tells us, he will be despised and rejected by men, smitten even by God, and afflicted. That does not look like strength. <clears throat> that does not look like the power to crush the serpent laying in that manger. He would appear to all outward observance to be a helpless victim. So why is this his pattern? Well, uh, we often wonder, I'm sure you do, I have, as scripture even uh, allows itself to contemplate at times, why do the wicked people prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Of course, the dilemma is much more complicated than that question because when we ponder that question, we tend to put ourselves in, uh, in, in, in the good guy hat, right? And the wicked are the people who are wearing the bad guy hat. And so we think, well, I'm good. They're wicked. Why are they prospering? It's more complicated than that, isn't it? Because <clears throat> according to scripture, the problem is not mainly that there's wickedness out there. There is wickedness out there. But your biggest dilemma and my biggest dilemma, whoops, sorry, is that there's wickedness in here. 
That's, that's, that's the root of the problem, isn't it? So Ephesians 2, <clears throat> 1 to 3 reminds us, Paul, Paul reminds the Ephesians, and by extension us in, in the early part of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 2, that we were all dead in the tes- trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, he says, following the prince of the power of the air. And down at the end of verse 3, he says, we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know what he's saying there? In our fallenness, we're all snake-like. That's who we are. And so here's the, here's, the big, here's the big dilemma. If this little baby has come to crush snakes, we get crushed too. How can a perfectly holy God save even a single sinner? And the answer is on display for us in the pattern set down by Jesus at the very beginning of his earthly life. He's coming to destroy sin, but he is coming first to bear the penalty of sin so that repentant sinners can be delivered by him and not destroyed by him. Now that means that in order for him to go as low as he needs to go to save us, he must be truly human, right? We've already, we've already talked about that a little bit. As the son of God, <clears throat> he is, he share, shares the divine nature He is invulnerable to death. God can't die. As God the Son, he can't die. And yet, the penalty for sin is death. For the penalty to be paid, there must be a death. So so one of the primary purposes, then, of the incarnation is that in, in, in taking on a human nature, God the Son is taking on a nature that is capable of suffering the penalty of death. Right? There, there, must, be a, there must be a payment a blood payment, a sacrificial payment, and yet, apart from the incarnation, he can't die. So he takes on a nature that is capable, first, of entering into our experience, representing us with righteousness, but then actually suffering the penalty of death as he lays down his life on our behalf. So that means, in all of the true humanity of Jesus, that following his miraculous conception... Like all other human children, Jesus gestated in his mother's womb. He had dirty diapers. He was dependent on being nursed by Mary. He had to learn to crawl and walk and run and read and write without ever surrendering his deity. Jesus humbled himself by entering our line on the way from a manger to a cross. And along that path, right, throughout his life, throughout his ministry, we see time and again how humbly he refrains from exercising the prerogatives of his own self-defense, of his own self-interest. Friends, there is so much, so much glory to behold in that manger, and yet it is very counterintuitive to the way that fallen people would think, isn't it? Uh, the next so, so right, that's, that's, that's setting the context and, and the declaration of the birth of Jesus. The next major movement is the response of heaven. And we see this in verses 8 through 14 in the encounter that the shepherds have with the angels. Uh, let me read that for you, and then we'll reflect on it together. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So here we get a glimpse into what makes heaven sing. And we should pay careful attention because if it makes heaven sing, it should make us sing as well, right? First Peter 1 uh, 12 tells us <clears throat> excuse me, that the salvation of sinners accomplished by Jesus is something into which angels long to look. Remember, we said a moment ago, they, they don't experience it firsthand, right? Unfallen angels don't, don't need the redemption of Jesus. Fallen angels don't experience it. But the unfallen angels, they long to look into this gospel work that God the Son is doing. And here, they're getting a glimpse. <clears throat> and where do they shine? The glory of God. It's interesting, again, right? Remember, we, we talked about what, what would be a, sort of obvious and apparent to most people at the time and the counterintuitive nature of this work. Um, if you were a mover and shaker in those days, you might have expected them to shine the light of God's glory on Caesar's palace. It's not where they shine it. You might expect them to shine it on the temple in Jerusalem. That's not where they shine it. They start shining the radiance of the glory of God on a shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem. There's a point in that, right? This Savior, as they say, is a Savior for all the people. Not the influential, merely the powerful, the you know, elite, whatever society at any given time says are the, the movers and the shakers. He's a Savior for every man and every woman. Now, whenever, and, and David pointed this out earlier when we read from, from Luke chapter 1 and Mary's in, encounter with the angel, when people in the Bible encounter God's glory like this, they tend understandably to respond in fear, right? And the shepherds are no different here. We saw their fear in verses 9 and 10 and the response from the angel, which is, fear not. God's glory provokes an awareness of our sin and broken relationship to him. That's, that's right. In the presence of God's glory, in the, in, in, in the spectacle of God's holiness, people cannot help but draw the conclusion of God's holiness. But the, 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 the truth that comes in tandem with that is that we also cannot help but be aware of our own sin. Right? And, so, and so the glory of God in that respect can be, can be frightening. But the angel says, fear not, I have good news of great joy. And then he tells them this news in verse 11, that today the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, has been born. And then he gives a sign to the shepherds by which they will locate this child. We see that in verse 12. The child will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. Now, the part of the sign in which they'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes is entirely unsurprising. Right? That's what you did with babies. It's kind of what you do with babies now, right? Uh, they're born in the hospital, and you, you wrap them up real tightly in the, in the, in the blanket, and they you know, can't move their arms, and they enjoy being sort of held uh, tightly and closely. 
That's entirely expected. What is not expected is that they would find him lying in a manger. Okay? And at this point, in verses 13 and 14, the, the host of heaven can barely restrain themselves any longer, and so they burst out in praise over the glory of this little one born in the manger. See, for all of the angelic glory that is occurring in that shepherd's field, what the angel says is that if you want to see real glory, go look in that manger. The true glory of God is to be found with that infant lying in that manger. In other words, their message to the shepherds and by extension to the world to us is that everything you ever need is in that manger. Uh, Jesus does what nothing and no one else can do, right? He unites the glory of God with peace and joy to lost sheep. The glory of God, he ma- right? He makes it accessible to us in a way that doesn't destroy us because of our sin, but rescues, redeems, and reconciles us. So what about this uh, strength that looks <clears throat> like weakness? In James 4, I'm just going to reference it. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but James instructs us um, in, in chapter 4, verse 7 of his book, that those who humbly submit to God cannot only find that they resist the devil, but that also in resisting the devil, the devil will flee from them. So by humbly submitting to God, we can resist the devil, and we should, right? And as we humbly entrust ourselves to God, that submission to God will not only enable us to resist the devil, but cause the devil to flee from us. Now, in our case, the devil... make make sure we get this right. The devil does not flee because of us. We're not scary enough to him. And he will come back and try again. But he will flee from us because of our submission to Christ. Now, the humble obedience of Jesus in the incarnation is portraying in the major key, what James 4 says might be true of you and I in a minor key. By humble submission to the will of his good and trustworthy father, Jesus both crushed the head of Satan and, as the hymn goes, saves us all from Satan's power. And for that, he is highly exalted. He is given the name above all names, At one and the same time, he magnifies the glory of God and makes provision for our joy and peace. That's what no one else and nothing else can do. It's hard to fathom Jesus' willingness to do this, isn't it? Because Jesus had the opportunity and the power and the right to self-protect again and again and again, right? of, of, Of all people who have ever walked the face of the earth, he, less than all the rest, deserves to be on that cross. Did not deserve to be there. He had the prerogative and the power of self-protection, but from the manger to the cross, he refused to exercise that for our sakes. Think about what phenomenal strength of character that took not to self-protect when perfect self-protective power is at his disposal. You might think of his restraint 
before Caiaphas at this trumped-up trial by night. His restraint before Pilate, right? His restraint even on the cross when with a word he could call a legion of angels and end it all. How did he do that? How did he, how did he, how did he exercise that self-restraint and look not to his own interest but to ours? Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. He says, when he was reviled, Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did he do it? He had full confidence in the trustworthy character of God, his father, at every point along the way, even at great cost to himself. He stooped so very low to make you and I his own. And that is what makes heaven sing praises. And as I mentioned a moment ago, what makes heaven praise should make us praise. So here's a question to reflect on this afternoon. Do you find that to be the case? Do you find that the good news of Jesus Christ in a passage like our passage this morning, do you find that just interesting? Is it just a curiosity? Or do you find that it actually brings you joy? If you have never received this good news with joy before, even if you've understood it, right? Even if you've been able to, 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 to articulate it and find it intellectually curious or stimulating, you, you, can, you can receive that good news with joy today. You can welcome him and receive his peace. If you received it with joy, but find that lately, for one reason or another, you've sort of cooled to that joy. We've got some encouragement <clears throat> that I want to share with you in our final chunk, maybe to help fan that flame. And the final chunk is verses 15 to 21, in which we get uh, the response of the shepherds and Mary and some instruction for our own uh, manner of response to this gift. So verse 15 Uh, Reads, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Okay, so... If it is true that everything we ever need was found in that manger, right? And, and yet sometimes we still, we still struggle to believe it, don't we? The most ancient lie of all is that if you and I don't look out for number one, there's no one in the universe who will. The most ancient lie of all is that we've got to make sure we get ours. Nobody else is looking out for it. This, this doubt <clears throat> scoffs at the notion that this helpless baby in the manger could do anything about sins that we have suffered 
or sins that we have committed. So since Genesis 3, and, and very much unlike Jesus, you and I clutch, even when we don't have the prerogative of self-protection, we clutch to do so where we can, right? We, we're very interested in watching our own backs. We, we succumb time and again to that temptation. And we look at him, lying in a food trough. Or you, you read of him in the pages of scripture being executed amongst criminals. You envision him in your mind's eye, bleeding on the cross. And you go, that doesn't appear very powerful. This, this impasse, right? Everything you ever need is in the manger, say the angels. Our, our disposition to, to doubt and to struggle with that affirmation. How can we become convinced that what they said is true? This is where I think the response of the shepherds and the response of Mary help to show us the way. So first, the shepherds. Notice in verse 16, they went with haste to find Mary and Joseph. The shepherds made haste to get from the field to the manger. They don't doubt. They don't delay to tie up loose ends. They behave like they have become convinced in a moment that everything they ever need is in that manger. And so they go with haste. And they declare. And they rejoice. You you, you could summarize the response of the shepherds with uh, three three words. Uh, Hear, embrace, proclaim here embrace proclaim they hear the good news right from the angels they embrace the good news which is why they pack up camp to get out of there in a hurry and go see this baby in the manger and they proclaim the good news right this this reveals a, a transformative act that's taking place in them they 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 hear in a way there's a, there is a kind of hearing that does not lead to embracing right this is a, there's a different kind of hearing. We'll say, say more about that in a minute. But they, they, a kind of hearing that leads to an embracing, a treasuring, and therefore a proclaiming or heralding the good news that has been entrusted into them. Their reception of the good news changed everything for them. And, and we actually see something quite similar with, with Mary. Um, same, same words, right, to summarize. Hear, embrace, uh, proclaim, and, and we could add her, her obedience um, she's heard from an angel in chapter 1. <clears throat> she hears from uh, the shepherds in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. We'll look at that again in a minute. We see her embrace in verse 19 of chapter 2. And then if you look down at verse, at verse 21, some, sometimes you might think, well, how, I mean, this is sort of related to the birth of Jesus, but it's not the Christmas story. Uh, when he's circumcised eight days later, he's, he's called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. His name, Jesus, means, right, we're told this in Matthew 1, that it means that he's the one who will save their people from their sins. And so after Mary has heard from the angel and the shepherds, and she has embraced and treasured and pondered these things in her heart, what does she do? She, together with Joseph, obeys the angel, by giving to their son the name that heaven had assigned to him, indicating he would be the one to save their people from their sins. So acting on trust, her obedience reflects a transformative embrace of this good news uh, as well. So I mentioned in verse 17, uh, the angels, or excuse me, the shepherds make known the saying. Verse 18, 
Uh, they, p- people who heard what the shepherds had to say wondered at what the shepherds said. But then in verse 19, the, the verbs get, they get even more intense, right? I mean, there, 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 there's something um, of an even stronger nature to Mary's response than, than the, those who uh, wondered in verse 18 at what the shepherds told them. Verse 19, Mary treasured all these things in her heart and pondered them. It's very strong uh, language. If you, if you continue to make your way through Luke's gospel, eventually you get to the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. And we're not going to look there now. But it's a, it's a parable that probably many of us are familiar with. And in that parable, there's a sower who scatters seed on four different kinds of soil. Okay? The four different kinds of soil are there's a path, uh, there's some rocks, there's thorny ground, and then there's good soil, okay? Four different kinds of soil. Same sower, same seed, different soil. And Luke 8.15 says this, referring to the fourth soil, the good kind. As for that which fell in the good soil, they are those who, see if this sounds familiar, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Hear Hold fast, bear fruit. The difference, by the way, in, in Luke 8, the difference between those four soils is the depth to which the seed of God's word goes in. God, it's the same word, right? It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not a different word. It's the, it's the word of God. And the difference is the depth to which it goes in and is embraced or received. So Mary, here in Luke 2, is a picture of the good soil. She's a role model of the good soil in Luke chapter 8. Her treasuring and pondering all that the angel had said and and the shepherds had said. That's a picture of taking the word of God in deep. She doesn't just race by it, right? She holds it fast. She lets it soak, as it were, into the taste buds of her soul. Again, we mentioned a moment ago, there is such a thing as hearing without hearing. And there is also hearing that leads to treasuring. We need the latter. And Mary models that for us here. It's not to say that the shepherds are sinless or flawless from this point forward, or even that Mary is. Mary stumbles, right? Read Mark chapter 3 sometime. She, she falters in faith. She is not perfect. She needs the deliverance that we all need. And yet, the shepherds and Mary are headed in the right direction, right? They're treasuring God's word and being transformed by it. <clears throat> so what about us? We said where all this is going is, is that in the response of the, uh, of the heavens and the shepherds and the angels, Luke is instructing us in a course of action uh, as, as, as well. Luke wants us, the spirit wants us to treasure and live like we've been granted everything we ever need, that child in the manger. Just consider how much there is to ponder and treasure in the fact that God's transcendent, saving glory came to us in the form of a humble, dependent infant. That the creator of the world came, he he made it all, and it doesn't have a place for him to sleep properly. That he is a king who will conquer our greatest enemies through a form of self-sacrifice that looks like defeat. That he holds back 
the rightful prerogatives of self-magnification so that he can use his saving power to deliver us and not destroy us. There is no end to the depths of those meditations. You, 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 can't, you, can't, you can't intake that. There's not enough time <laughs> to take that all down. And similarly, there is no end to the transformative power that that kind of treasuring and holding fast could have on our souls if only we would take it in in the manner that we see reflected here. Lastly, Luke wants us to see that in our own lives, God is not absent in our weakness, but instead that's exactly where he loves to show up. Do you remember this, this uh, <clears throat> passage at the end of 1 Corinthians 1? It's, uh, you can jot it down if you want. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Paul says there, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, following Christ's own pattern. God loves to show his faithfulness in our weakness, doesn't he? Being united to Christ means <clears throat> that Christ's disciples go where Jesus goes. And that includes what Philippians 3 calls the fellowship of his sufferings. If you experience that in union with Christ, that's not a sign of being out of step with him in this present life. There is a day when that will all be gone. But experiencing that in this life is actually a sign of being in step with him. <clears throat> in time, the pattern leads to exaltation. Just as it did for Jesus, it will so for his sheep. God will exalt. But he does so as 1 Peter 5 tells us, at the right time. And the timing, that's, that's part of the information, part of the details that we lack, isn't it? We have to leave the timing of that to God, but we can do so because he's proven himself completely trustworthy in what he's already done in and through Christ. In Christ, God made snakes into sons and daughters. And if he can be trusted for that, he can be trusted for the rest. Are you feeling weak today? That's a hard place to be, isn't it? It's not entirely a bad place to be. It is a place where God loves to meet his children. So here's your take home. If everything we ever need was truly in that manger, and if treasuring that mode of God's glory is a tool that the Holy Spirit uses that leads us to becoming conformed more and more into Christ's image, then maybe we can think of ways that we could commit this week to pondering and treasuring just how far he came to be with us. Maybe, maybe we might lay hold of a verse like 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Here's what it says. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Second Corinthians 8 and 9. Wouldn't that be a great verse to just marinate in this week? Well, this week, today even, perhaps, there will be temptations to ponder with self-pity the reality of our many weaknesses. Ask God in his mercy to redirect those false meditations to the glory of Christ's strength made manifest in his weakness and yours. When we're together like this, when you guys are together worshiping, what we're fundamentally trying to do is to help one another stir up our embrace and our treasuring of the one in the manger who came to provide everything that we ever need. And we're going to continue in that as we close in a final song and then move out from here on this, the day after Christmas 2021. But before we do that, I'd love to close in prayer. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we are filled with fresh gratitude at this Christmas story and the good news uh, that's that's almost beyond calculation for us. We pray that you would give fresh eyes to see and ears to hear all that you were up to and all that was going on in sending your son, born of Mary, laid in a humble manger, living a life of self-denying, uh, non-self-protecting uh, uh, ministry that would, that would obey on our behalf and then go to the place that Jesus, you absolutely never deserved to be, but went voluntarily so that you could make snakes into sons and daughters so that you could rescue us from our sin rather than destroy us because of it. Uh, Lord, there's not enough time in, in any day or any year to meditate with sufficient understanding or to respond with sufficient treasuring and obedience and gratitude, Lord. But we pray that you would help us to make strides in that direction today, this afternoon, this week, even into the, the new year that is almost upon us. Strengthen us, Lord, by this good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.